0: Broadway Bullet, Volume 903, Past Meets Present, for August 29th, 2018. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and subscribe to the podcast for free. And don't miss a single episode. Now available on Spotify. <laughs> constantly collide in the theater, old stories become new, and new trends influence how we see shows of the past. First up, Tina Marie Casamento shares with us her highs and lows, bringing the story of a young Judy Garland to Broadway with her development as writer and producer of Chasing Rainbows. Then, Michael Lee Brown has been alternate for Dear Evan Hansen since the beginning, a show that will be influencing how future shows tell their stories. Michael discusses what so attracted him to the material. Next. The new adaptation of The Old Frankenstein continues to run strong at St. Luke's. Actors Adam Key and Gabriella Marzetta discuss working on this show in a very new rep-in-theater tradition that is helping shows find their feet. Finally, one of the oldest items of our songwriting heritage, Tin Pan Alley, may face being erased in the name of progress in Lower Manhattan. George Calderero stops by to discuss its historic and entertainment importance and how you can help at Save Alley.
1: Breaking the Business.
0: I am here talking with Tina Marie Casamento, who is currently working on *Chasing Rainbows*, uh, a Judy Garland biomusical that is currently slated with not a theater yet, no date yet, but they're they're in heavy what? preparations to bring it to Broadway in 2019. Um, she conceived the show. She uh, co-wrote uh, or rewrote some of the lyrics from the songs that are taken from the catalog and uh, and is producing the show and is here to discuss with everyone kind of the process of producing a new show from th- from this kind of year out standpoint that we're at right now. Yes, so.
2: the the concept to the stage which they say I guess Lynn Manuel it took him 8 years with Hamilton and he already had a a hit on Broadway so yeah. I don't feel so bad <laughs> cuz I've started this process in like 2009. And I would say that I'm an accidental producer. (laughs) You know, I just have had this idea since I was 14 years old, and I just assumed somebody would do it. And no one did. So here we are. So before we get
0: into talking about everything going on with the show, do you want to give your elevator pitch about what this show is?
2: Sure. So Chasing Rainbows, The Road to Oz, is about how Judy Garland almost didn't become Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. It's about her young life with her father and her family and their vaudeville career when her name was Frances Gum, and how she felt like she needed to become a star in order to keep her family together. Um, it's a it's a story about family, and uh, it was inspired because when I was a young girl, um, age seven or so. I, and I saw The Wizard of Oz, I really related to the girl that played Dorothy. <laughs> I didn't know she was Judy Garland. I just yeah. loved Dorothy, and I related to the farm girl that lived on a farm with her Auntie Em and her Uncle Henry, and I thought, where are her parents? Why doesn't she have parents? <laughs> and then she sang Over the Rainbow, and I thought, oh, that's where her parents are. <laughs> and I really connected with her because I lost my mother when I was four, and I thought, oh, she and I have something in common, and, uh, and then I read bios about young Judy's life and, and I really connected with her and that's how I became sort of a, a young Judy Garland fan.
0: <laughs> so what was the process of, I mean, w- when did you actually come up with the idea for the musical, you know?
2: Well, I mean, it really, come- it really was something I thought about when I was 14, cause I started to listen to all these young Judy, Judy songs. And I thought they were so awesome, mm-hmm. you know, zing with the strings of my heart and, uh, and I'm always chasing rainbows and, and all these great songs. And Judy had a quote, the history of my life or, is in my songs or something like that. And, um, and I thought, you know, it would, be, it would make so much sense to use these songs in a musical to tell her story. And, um, and so that was really when it started. But what, what actually happened serendipitously as an adult, I found myself, you know, in 2009 in a very serendipitous situation where... I happened to know of a music publishing company that had just had a couple of successes on Broadway that was looking for ideas for their catalog. And I found myself in this position where I could actually pitch this show to them. And um, they said, they said, huh, maybe um, there's already a show on Broadway right now about Judy Garland called The End of the Rainbow. And I said, no, but that's the end of her life. And it's really sad. I want to tell the story of an underdog who was told she was too fat and not pretty enough. and And, you know, her name was Frances Gum, and who had a beloved father that passed away when she was 14 and and before she did The Wizard of Oz. And and I was very interested in that story. And so they said, great, can you write a treatment? And I was like, sure I can. (laughs) What's a treatment? (laughs) So then I started doing some research on what a treatment was. And I. um, Is it
0: like putting ointment on. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So a treatment is basically, it's kind of like an outline with ideas of how you want to use the music and how you want to tell the story and what songs you would think about using. And they usually ask you things like, you know, who do you see as the writer? Who do you see as the director? Who do you see as the show? And, you know, you just basically write what your imagination tells you to write. My husband, David, was very, very instrumental in this uh, process because he knew that I had this idea for a long time. And, um, so, you know, I wrote the treatment. I made it very clear that, you know, we wanted to, you know, use some of the songs and maybe adjust some of the lyrics and that I wanted to go deeper into the catalog to find songs that told the story properly. And, um, and because my husband happens to be a fabulous arranger, you know, I knew that we were going to take the music and make it feel contemporary and fresh and not like the old-fashioned 1930s songs. Um, what's fun is when I played I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, which happens to be her father Frank's song. Um, who was a closeted gay man. Um, I played it for some students, and they thought it was an original new song. They they heard the song, and they were so moved by it. They were like, I want that in my book. Who wrote it? And they named some contemporary writers, and I just giggled and said, actually, it was written in 1912. (laughs) So...
0: Um, do you have a demo of this arrangement that we have I do, a song, I do, we're talking I, about it where we could actually, give people a little snippet of what the I, sound is? I do
2: is? i actually and it was it was we were really fortunate to um, enroll a fantastic singer um to sing it for us and um and yeah I'd be happy to share that with you all right let's take a listen I
1: am
3: always chasing red want and hope and
1: dream in vain
0: great <laughs> <laughs> how's that for a lead <laughs> yeah. magic of editing you magic it, of editing <laughs> and
2: I you know I'll have to like make yeah. sure I can say Hugh Panaro's name I don't you know i I don't know if I can. I'll just I'll find out like, what the what the things are. Let's ask Malini. Do I have to pay him or something? I'd, I'd like to credit him for sure. He's amazing. Yeah.
0: So, um, so is that the singer that you're talking?
2: Yeah, Hugh Panero. He I've always been such a fan of his vocals, and he was so wonderful. Like I uh, got his information through a friend, and he came into the recording studio for us, and and you know knocked it out and sang it beautifully. And it was actually, um, that recording is one of the first ways that I got investors when Mm -hmm. they heard that recording, they were so moved, um, that it wasn't Judy singing every song, which is what people think that, you know, it's going to be a concert of Judy singing Judy's greatest hits, Mm -hmm. but it's not that, um, like we have a song in the show called got a pair of new shoes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, anybody who really thinks about the story is like, Oh, is that when she got the ruby slippers? Why? Yes. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. In fact, (laughs) <laughs> how we use that song. And, uh, and our choreographer, Dennis Jones, is uh, turning that into a really fun, you know, tap number. So we have a set of Ruby Slippers that have taps on them. And, um, you know, so there's some old Hollywood feel in a couple of the production numbers. And uh, it's super fun how these songs just really resonate to her story. Um, the other song that I think is a really interesting use is um, we have a song, You Made Me Love You, which everyone knows Judy sang on, on you know, uh, Broadway Melody, and she sang it to Dear Mr. Gable, and it was this adorable song. But we actually introduced the song first as a song sung by the mother about the father and their relationship and how, you know, you made me love you. I didn't want to do it. Because I really believe that Frank and Ethel were, um, you know, they had love for each other. But he was a gay man, mm-hmm. and and they married, and they had kids. She was a spinster, I guess a spinster. She married late mm-hmm. in life, and I think she wanted to have children they had a lot in common because they performed together. And, you know, maybe she thought she could change him or maybe she married him anyway. Who knows? Um, but I think there was real love between the two of them, but it just wasn't the kind of love that would sustain, you know, a romantic marriage. Um, so, so we use that song for, for Ethel to sing, and it's, it's quite beautiful. And then, of course, Judy sings it later <laughs> in, in the way that we remember. But, you know, it's a great way to use the song to tell the story.
0: Now, when you're licensing songs by different, you know, composers and you know, songwriters, did you stick with this one publisher's catalog, or did you dig into other catalogs as well?
2: I digged into a few um, in order to, like, for example, we really needed a, needed the song "Judy" um, for our character George Jessel to sing because the story goes that that she that when she was still Frances Gum, she was discovered by George Jessel and she sang on the stage, and he said her name was terrible, so he. <laughs> Um, you know, names her. He names her Judy Garland. Basically, he comes up, helps her come up with the name, and she comes up with the name Judy. So I had to go to a different publisher for that. And then "Zing with the Strings in My Heart" was a very important song that is owned, uh, licensed by Warner. Um, so we had to go to them about that one as well. But mostly, I stuck with the EMI Feist Robbins mm-hmm. catalog because they were the ones that gave me the development, yeah. developmental uh, deal, uh, collaboration agreement. <laughs> which is another funny thing yeah. because when I when they gave me that deal after I pitched it. Um, I thought that's great. What's a collaboration agreement? <laughs> so I had to, you know, hire a lawyer and say, Hey, I have the rights to all these songs. What does this mean? Um, because like I said, I never intended to, to be a producer. I just thought I have this great idea and, um, you know, somebody will join me. And, you know, what's happened is along the way, I've just bit by bit, just done it myself because, uh, because I had the passion and the drive and, um, I sort of left behind a, a, A budding directing career and a a performing career just as more responsibilities came with this project
0: we'll be right back to this interview after a brief word from our sponsors
4: special thanks to our travel sponsor
0: are you looking at majoring in theater for a career as a creative artist i've created a program at the university of providence in montana that is designed to meet your goals if you want to be an artist you are an entrepreneur and our BA in Theater and Business Arts is designed for you to learn essential business skills with classes specifically designed for theater artists. You'll also explore different artistic skills to help you develop your talents. And our productions are very student-driven, with a real focus on students creating their own work, so you know how to do that once you graduate. With a senior creative project of your choice, and a business senior project of developing your own five-year business plan for your career, after graduation you'll know exactly what your next steps are. UP also has some great programs like a four-year graduation guarantee and a student loan repayment assistance program. If you'd like to find out more, click on our sponsor link at broadwaybullet.com.
4: Special thanks to our location sponsor.
0: Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatists Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I recorded this episode. In April of this year, DGF launched its New Voices program, which brought trained teaching artists into fourth-grade classrooms. These artists led the students in the collaborative creation of their own plays, which were then performed for the school by professional actors. It is crucial that young students are given proper access and training in theater to share their stories and learn the power of their own voices. If you'd like to help support DGF in fostering the writers of tomorrow, please visit dgf.org and be sure to follow them on Twitter at DGFound. Now, back to our interview in progress.
2: So yeah, I'm an I'm an accidental yeah. producer.
0: Yeah, so when did or did you just start slowly getting into more and more production on this or was there a point where you like, you know what I'm going to produce this?
2: No, mm-hmm. there was never a a real definitive like I am going to produce this. I think I just kept doing things and then and then different mentors that I had in the producing world were like, "You know you're producing this." And I was like, "I am." I <laughs> you know, I just was kind of going with my gut about what to do next. Um, we, you know, we, we spent three years actually in a waiting period, um, as a very, very prominent, wonderful writer was wanting to write the show, but had so many shows on Broadway, they couldn't really put the time into it. And, um, we parted ways very amicably and then hired Mark Cito. And, um, that's when things started to really, you know, really cook in 2014 and with Mark, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just things started happening. We got into the Goodspeed Writer's Colony. We worked on the show. We pretty much wrote Act One in a week up there um, and then finished writing the show. And then I started saying, well, how do I get people to see this? And then I started just, you know, booking space. And we went to a college, Belmont University, and did a workshop production of it with the students. And it was a huge success. Um, and I just used my contacts, people that I had met over the years, to say, hey, I'm working on this musical would love to, you know, try it out on its feet. What do you think? Um, you know, raised money from people who knew me as a teacher and just believed in me and, um, wanted to help me get started. So yeah, completely, uh, one step at a time, had no idea that I was going to be the producer, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What has been reaction within kind of the traditional, you know, producers, you know, (laughs) network to, um, because this has been in common, but now all of a sudden I see like a maybe it's a trend, enough for a trend with Ken Davenport, you know, both writing and producing on getting the band back together, yes, which is yes. opening this fall. He's and so you inventive and,
2: and yeah. Well, Stacy Mindich, who I, who I think is such a, a an amazing woman, who you know, she was the one who put together the whole team for Dear Evan Hansen, and you know, mm-hmm. she encouraged them to write it, but she had conversations with them to help mm-hmm. sort of figure out what they were going to write mm-hmm. about and. So I think she was she and Kent Davenport are um, you know really involved in in creating something from scratch. I mean it's kind of what Hal Prince and um, uh, um, God I can't think of his name now. <laughs> just terrible. Another
0: producer I think I, I, I love her, Sue Frost and Junkyard Dogs. They think she's
2: so strong. Are
0: great at like they don't just they, they don't say I want to do this show and hire out composers, but they get very involved early in and developing you know new works that other producers aren't doing i right. think that's a great crop of
2: i mean david stone does it as well the way that he uh-huh. took next to normal and and when he saw the starts of that and kevin mccullum and jeffrey sellers of mm-hmm. course i think what's unique though about my particular situation is is it started with the seed of an idea that just continued to grow uh it wasn't like i saw another project and then started developing it and that's kind of what stacy i think did with paisley and paul she saw mm-hmm. the talent of those writers and mm-hmm. started bringing them together i'm sure other producers do this as well. I mean, I Cameron McIntosh, I mean, yeah. he's he's like a force in the industry who yeah. just you know has ideas and. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's um, I I think you know I've had, I could be a one-hit wonder. I've had this <laughs> idea since I was fourteen. So who could tell the story better? I guess. But um, you know, just to, to use the MGM Hollywood feel for a Broadway musical just seems like a no-brainer, especially with an icon like Judy Garland. She's an American icon who almost wasn't. Mm-hmm. I mean. Can you imagine, like, if she didn't get the role of Dorothy, would we even know who she was, um, other than the Andy Hardy films? But, you know, it's, it's uh, an amazing story that she has, and, and she's such an underdog, and they didn't know what to do with a teenager. Anyway, I'm rambling. Yeah, I get no, no. excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll all get there together. We all have to work together.
0: All right, well, it's been a pleasure talking. Thank you. And have fun with the next steps. If you enjoyed this interview, remember, we have the complete unedited interviews of everything we put up in our seasons available at broadwaybullet.com. So you can search and find out more about Tina Marie Casamento and this show, as well as any other particular interview you may find particularly compelling. Again, go to broadwaybullet.com. Also, those full unedited interviews are listed in the podcast feed while this show is current. Other than that, it becomes archived and you can find it on the website. Check that out. Thanks.
4: Up Close
0: I am here with Michael Lee Brown who has been working for a solid year and a half in a show that nobody cares about <laughs> at all, <laughs> At all, <laughs> Dear
5: Evan Hansen. Yes,
0: yes, yes. You're currently uh, the standby, but standby doesn't seem like a fair word when you are actually doing the role twice a yeah,
5: week. Yeah, exactly. So I started out as a standby, and now mm-hmm. I'm considered an alternate. So yeah. I, um, I alternate the role of Evan Hansen. I play Evan Hansen twice a week on the Wednesdays and Saturday matinees. And then I also I stand by for the other two characters as Connor and Jared too. Okay. So I go on for them once in a while too.
0: So you prepared for a lot of multiple. Prepared options. for anything,
5: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been on for all three guys. I was actually the first person to go on for all three guys on Broadway, which is fun. So I, yeah, I played Connor, Jared, and, and Evan, and now, like I said, I play Evan Weekly, which has been really cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't get a chance to see you unfortunately because it was just kind of last minute. I oh, okay, saw yeah. one. I saw one orchestra seat on Thursday on the day of, and oh, I like. Got I, it. Okay. And I hadn't seen it. Um, yeah, yeah. But I can understand why you got two roles for sure. That is one hell of an intensive role. Yeah,
5: no, for sure. It definitely, it, it's it's uh, it's vocally tiring, it's physically tiring, and, and emotionally tiring. You know, there's a lot there's a lot to that role, and it's such a wonderful role. But no, it definitely helps to have you know two people kind of playing the role because it's, it takes off that little extra stress, you know, and um, it gives a little break, and yeah. on the, especially on the two show days. And that's really what's <laughs> yeah. important. You know, it's really hard to do the show in two days, you know, yeah. or two two in one day. You know, so
0: yeah yeah because i mean a lot of listeners are probably have worn out the cast album thing you know that singing wise vocally demanding but yeah but listen there's a lot of like shouting yelling <laughs> yeah, emotional yelling, yeah like combined emotional i'm like i am truly like wow i'm impressed that you can keep your voice in shape yeah i know, nah.
5: the, I know the stamina of that it definitely takes something that you know build up and it's just a lot you know a lot of practice and a lot of you know vocal health you know and knowing vocal health and taking voice lessons and stuff to kind of stay healthy for that but no no it's a wonderful role and yeah but no it's it's exhausting for sure <laughs> What's your
0: favorite moment in the show when you get to do it? Is oh there my gosh! Particular.
5: Um, I think it's it's different. I think it's it kind of changes each day, like how I'm feeling each day. I would say I love for forever. I just love that whole scene. I love that mm-hmm. song. It's like one of my favorite songs in the show. And of course, waving. That's such a fun. Yeah part in the show, especially how they do it on stage with all the lights and everything. It feels kind of like you're at a little rock concert. I think a way, the
0: you know? set a new bar for how big a small cast show can feel. Yeah,
5: no, it feels huge. <laughs> it really does. I mean, everybody says that coming out. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's only eight people up there. It feels like such a full ensemble, like so much energy and, and everything combined with it and the story. It's just, no, it's it's so true. Um, so no, I, I'd say it changes each day. I, I think depending on how I'm feeling, like I really might like words fail one day, or the next day I might really like waving, or might like for forever, and or if I could tell her I love that scene. So it just I think it depends on on how each each day's you know performing, you know, and and uh, and and how it feels that day, you know. But uh, the show as a whole, I love, of course, yeah. So how old are you?
0: Oh. He, he, yes. the, the other yes. hands and I saw, I'm like, yeah, he looks like a 17 year old. Oh, I'm looking yeah. at his Broadway credits and going, definitely I, like, not a 17 year old. You also look very young, but I'm uh, also thanks. guessing you've got to.
5: Thank you. Uh, yes, no, I, I, I'm uh, 25. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, no, no, no. no. But yeah, I, 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 I'm glad to hear I look young. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean to
0: me like you know everybody's like oh you miss ben platt you know and i called him i said you know maybe i miss ben platt but i didn't know who this guy was and yeah. i could fully buy into that he was 17 he was, yes, I, yeah, like, of the, 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 course
5: and i think that's what's important of course as long as you can you buy or 17 that's 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 the goal of course you know <laughs> and so
0: i i think i got a different experience watching him than i would have was amazing as i'm sure ben platt oh, yeah, was amazing. Yeah, yeah there is something about not knowing the guy or not having any kind oh, of baggage of or history and really being able to be sucked into yeah, the Yeah, no, of
5: course. And, I mean, everybody who's played the role so far has been amazing. And, and I, everyone who's gotten to go, you know, see any of the Evans, they're all going to get an amazing show, you know. Um, but, yeah, no, of course, I understand that, yes. And one thing
0: we're going to talk about a little bit later too is you—you you do some songwriting and yeah, do some yeah, concerts do. and stuff. Yeah, Yep. But first, before we head to that, maybe yeah. I'd love to talk. What was your What was your career pre Evan Hansen? What led you to Evan Hansen as yeah, an actor?
5: Because of course. As a young actor, I'm sure there's lots of other people out there wondering how you kind of navigated. navigated everything. Yeah. I, I, so I kind—I long story short, I guess I, I started when I was um, about nine or ten. Um, my family was kind of always involved with the arts. My sister was always doing ballet; she's a ball- ballerina and really very talented. And she also got into um, acting and singing as well. And then my brother is a really talented uh, songwriter. He's a musician, and uh, he's like eight years older than I am. So when I was young, when he was in high school, doing all these, he was doing all these different. Uh, concerts he opened for like avril lavigne and pink and okay. aaron carter like all these big bands and arenas when he was in high school like really cool was, stuff what, what, what his was name it? is robbie brown and he he was his band was called no need at the time okay and it was really yeah, good, cool yeah. and he, he kind of like had this really you know and so i used to always go to all his concerts and everything and so I, at a young age around 10 i really got into songwriting and got into you know acting and everything and just and kind of just enter you know performing you know and so i started out doing theater camps and, and doing things like that and I started taking voice lessons around then, when I was around 10 or 11, and um, uh, I that voice teacher actually suggested I start auditioning and get a manager and stuff like locally. So uh, locally, I started to audition in Philly and, and New York and did like little commercials and industrials and stuff mm-hmm. like that, just kind of getting my feet wet in the kind of like TV and film realm of things, you know. And then um, through that and through auditioning and different things like that, I actually had an opportunity to go out to Los Angeles, and I went out to Los Angeles for a while and um, kind of studied acting there with a couple of different people who taught um, kids who were like on Nickelodeon and Disney Channel and <laughs> stuff like that, and stuff. So, so I really got at a young age. I was about like ten at that, that point, like eleven or twelve. Um, you know, learning kind of like the business side of the the whole of the whole entertainment industry, as well as you know TV acting and and stuff like that. And so that kind of got sparked me into in, into that kind of community. And then as I got a little older, I decided, you know, in high school, I want to be home and and kind of you know and be kind of at high school and and utilize new york i grew up in um, bucks county pennsylvania which is Mm -hmm. about like an hour and a half or so away from here so not too far and i actually went and i went to high school in new jersey um so it was a really quick train ride to um to new york so after high like after high school i used to uh take the train in do acting classes here do voice lessons here and and, and stuff like that and just kind of like generate a, uh, a network of knowing people and, and training here in New York City and getting to know people make friends here and stuff because I knew for when college came around I wanted yeah. to go to college in New York like that was my that was my goal I wanted to be in New York so that I can audition and and pursue you know music and, and theater and stuff like that and acting in general Um and so, uh, yeah, it just, you know, it was one of those things, you meet one person, I had a voice teacher that introduced me to what is now my manager now, and, and like that, and then when college came around, um, I'd done some, you know, regional theater, I did a show um, in D.C. called Torch Song Trilogy, which was directed by Michael Kahn, and actually starred Brandon Uranowitz, who, he's done a lot of cool stuff on Broadway now, and, and um, so that was a really great production, that was like halfway through my college experience, I left for a semester and came back, and, and um, you know, I did the show for a while. And then came back and actually, um, oh, and I went to Marymount Manhattan College. I don't know if I mentioned that. (laughs) Yeah, so when I went after high school, went to college, Marymount Manhattan College, studied there for two years, and then I left and did that show, Torch Song, came back in that halfway point. Are they they
0: pretty good about letting you guys work outside? of Because there's a lot of schools in town here that are like... I no, know that are we, hesitant about that. We want you all to ourselves. Yeah, for nothing.
5: that time, totally. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure how they felt about it. I, I the way it, <laughs> the, way, <laughs> I didn't, the way, I, didn't care I don't know, I just went, no, the way it <laughs> timed out, <laughs> the way it timed out, luckily, yeah. was that I auditioned over a summer. Oh, so yeah. it was like I was able to not go back for a semester and, and yeah. defer it, you know. But what I will say is with um, theater, when you're studying theater in college, it is, um, most of the courses are like year long courses. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to leave and come back. And I found that when I left and, and yeah. came back. And so what I actually did was, because I wanted to graduate still within a two year, like only two more years, mm-hmm. I actually switched to a communications major because a lot of those courses were um, semester based. Yeah. And um, so since I did two years of musical theater, I, I graduated with a theater minor, but I actually graduated with a communications major. And so I, I teach, like, classes. And that
0: has hurt you so So
5: much. <laughs> much. And it's been sort of hinder on my, uh, no, and so, um, yeah, so I, um, you know, I, I enjoy the communications major and uh, entertainment PR and stuff like that. And it kind of taught me some things, you know, I didn't really know about that end of the business. You know, I knew about the performing aspect and the business aspect and that aspect of, of performing and, and that. But I didn't know kind of, you know, the entertainment PR side of it. And that's been really, that was really interesting to me. And I actually even did, like, a, a, a um, a summer internship in London for entertainment okay. PR because I just want to take a break just to kind of like try something else and, and kind of see how that that was and I enjoyed it very much but you know I, acting and performing is what I love to do so I you know when I came back from that I'm like all right we gotta gotta continue with this you know <laughs> um but yeah no so I graduated that and, and I tell people I teach classes and stuff in the city and workshops and like that and I tell you know I, I tell everyone you know I don't think um when you you know whatever you graduate in college with you can do whatever you want with that it's great to have a degree you know um but you know your major and stuff that's 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 kind of it's okay to choose what what you want there you know um and it's okay to major in theater and yeah, work somewhere else and work somewhere else and that's true <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, a yeah. lot of people have done that they they graduate musical theater degree and they go and do something totally different that's okay it's just so the degree. parents think that theater is a bad
0: degree it's a, like, no
5: it's, it's, a, awesome. it's a great degree and i would have graduated with that degree if it wasn't yeah. just for a timing thing for me and and at that point when i got back from dc and i was i i was in college i was i already had a voice teacher here i had acting classes that i was going to regularly mm. i was auditioning and stuff so i didn't feel like i I necessarily needed the program to to still be pursuing yeah. you know musical theater and acting and everything like that because I always encourage kids and I I always say this I'm like always being in an acting class always be in a you know a voice class like just always constantly be learning and training because that's that's super important.
0: Well, before we wrap this up, do you yeah. maybe want to play uh, one of your original songs? Oh, play. play? Oh, play where you can email it to me, and I'll insert it into the magic. Oh, of Oh, yeah that would that
3: would be <laughs> that
1: would be great.
5: I'd be happy to do that. Yes, <laughs> you, yeah, like send you the the, yeah. the recording of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah, happy to. You want to tell us about what you what we're going to listen to here? Oh, okay. Um, oh, I got to pick one. Yeah, um, and, uh... Uh, okay, I guess I'll do. Um, okay, I'll do the title song. The way it used to be. It's called. It's kind of like a fun. Um, Toe-tapping song about just thinking about how uh, simpler time used to be, and how we, you know, the, all technology and stuff that is happening now. But that there's, you know, there's still, still beauty here for us to turn to. Yeah. All
0: right, let's listen. Yeah.
3: Things are getting hard to feel. The TV shows the news. What's real? doesn't no matter what you know, just speak, go click, and there you go. Eyes are always on the glass, as faces, places come and pass. All our info in a cloud, it's silent, but it's getting loud. Tangible is in the past, see these VHS, what's that? (laughs) Learning lessons on TV, it wasn't all reality. Everything is now not when it seems like we had more time then. To keep our heads down Beauty was filter free Social hadn't met the media We couldn't binge TV These times will make me miss The
1: way it used to
0: That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the name of your EP is? oh uh, way it used to be. Okay. And yes. you can find that on Okay, yeah, you
5: can find it on all on all streaming services, mm-hmm. Spotify, you know, iTunes, Amazon, all the all the streaming services mm-hmm. worldwide. <laughs> and
0: <laughs> listeners can find you for the next yes. foreseeable period of time. Wednesdays and Saturdays. Wednesdays and
5: Saturdays, <laughs> yes. And then um I on in of Enhancer. On Indere of Enhanson, Wednesday and Saturday afternoon on Deer of um and also, uh, yeah, I put updates on my Instagram, which is Hey Michael Lee Brown. So that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of my main place I go to for updates and stuff like that. So you can follow along there. All right.
0: Well, it was a pleasure
5: to yeah, get so a nice chance to talk to yes, you. Yes, no, thank you so much. Congratulations
0: on all your success. Uh, I appreciate
5: uh, it. No, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks so much.
1: On the Boards.
3: I am
0: sitting here with two up-and-coming actors, Gabriella Marzetta and Adam Key, who are currently represented off-Broadway in Frankenstein at St. Luke's Theatre. Um, I believe Adam is also doing Lily Marlene at yes. the St. Luke's. Yeah. Same place. Uh, and uh, <laughs> they're here to talk about uh, Frankenstein a little bit, their careers. I imagine some advice for other actors looking to uh, make their way in the city. Probably have <laughs> Quite a bit of advice. Yeah.
4: Between the two of us, I would say. <laughs> <I> Thanks, <so.
0: laughs> How are you guys doing? Doing fine. How are I'm you? Good. Good, good, good. So the first thing I'm curious about Frankenstein that I really was interested to about the actors is, you know, the, with uh, the St. Luke's, I love their model, how they, you know, by doing, you know, one or two shows a week with the shows in there running and rep, they give shows a chance to get their legs and develop without being like here and gone in, you know, two weeks, like so many shows. But I imagine that there are a lot of challenges, you know, in terms of, like, changing cast members and when a show's only going up once a week. Um, so I'm kind of curious, the, the challenges as an actor doing this kind of schedule.
6: Well, I, I think, uh, you know, with the, the script, it's, they're very open to changes in the script. But for the most part, you know, it stays the same. And every time you have new people come in, there's always the people who have been there. Obviously, the director and the playwright, but they're always the people who have been there and can kind of, you know, if you're standing in the wrong place, push mm-hmm. you to where you're supposed to be and that. But just having that uh, that consistency throughout and also having, like I said, the script that is open to changes, but there's also that, that structure that's mm-hmm. always, always there in place.
0: Yeah, how do you, how do you rehearse into? We used to. Were you at the very start to hear it?
4: I was. Yeah, I was um, an original cast member. I originated the part of Claire, who also plays like William, the young boy who, spoiler alert, gets strangled by the creature, <laughs> as does everyone, spoiler. pretty much. Um, <clears throat> so it's definitely been interesting being here from the very very beginning of the process because a lot of <clears throat> I feel like most people who've come in have covered the Claire track, like the mm. like. Ensemble part right. um, so I've gotten to be there, even as Elizabeth, because I play Elizabeth in this current run right now, so it's been fun not only seeing you know how the part has morphed, but you know him, I feel like you and I are, are the longest cast members right now, I, and I so, think so we yeah. we can you know be like like you said like no you're over there, like we've seen the parts evolve, so we know um. We know, like, you know, how the show should be, so. Yeah, how
6: the, how the show, where people should be, their marks and everything. And, and as you just said, it's interesting to see how different people come in and the parts change. You yeah. know, they'll keep the basic, mm-hmm. the basic structure of it, mm-hmm. but just the interpretations change yeah. a Definitely. little bit. So.
0: I understand when you came in, you had a very short rehearsal period. Adam. Yeah,
6: it was it was uh, very very short. Actually, it was about ten minutes. No, uh, it I was, mean, uh, go here, go here, go here, <laughs> yeah, and, go on. You're yeah. on. You're on. And, and, uh, and what, what show is this again? What show? Uh, as a matter of fact, I think in the first, I think in the first show, the first performance, the the opening song, we say Victor's coming home again. And I think I actually said Henry's mm. coming home again, and then I <laughs> caught myself, and then I realized I didn't know what I was talking about <laughs> or anything. But uh, no, the, that that uh, that rehearsal period, like I said, I knew the director. I'd worked with uh, Clint, the director, uh, as an actor, and he was terrific about just telling me kind of exactly what to do, where to go, and that. And then just over time, especially over the first few weeks, I was able to find find the character, find more details and more subtleties. And so forth. Very specifically,
0: how long was it from when you found out you were cast to going mm-hmm. on?
6: What, it was like a week and a half? Yeah, yeah a week and a half, I think. Yeah. That was, Actors out yeah, there get your chops up. That was great. <laughs> yeah. 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 great. Uh, but I had read the book, so, uh, you know, that's uh, helpful.
0: <laughs> so what are the challenges of... Um, you know, when a show's going up eight nights a week, everything gets kind of into a very smooth-running machine. And I'm wondering, when it's once a week, is it the same thing, or is it hard to, you know, jump back in every week?
4: <clears throat> it's it's interesting, because I feel like the show would be completely different doing it eight times a week. Um, it is a very emotionally draining show, and physically draining, right. I should say, yeah. too. Um, so it's, it's a blessing and a curse that it is only once a week, because um, with doing shows, you know day after day after day you're able to find the character more but it's also I've had more time you know outside of the show to really be you know really understand who Elizabeth is you know read different things about you know what her character is and how it's evolved to different stories and different interpretations of Frankenstein um, but it also makes it more special that it's only once a week because you only get to do it once a mm-hmm. week and it's such a pleasure not only to be to get to perform in New York City but to go yeah. you know off Broadway at an iconic theater such as the st luke's um makes me at least cherish it way more and like give it my all for that one day a week yeah, we have a it. Week, yeah.
6: and and you know it's it's interesting because we both have done shows seven eight times a week mm-hmm. and uh i think it's and probably most actors would agree that once you get into a run seven eight times mm-hmm. a week after a, a month or two or even a few weeks, you probably never look at, you don't even know where the script is anymore yeah. it's <laughs> lost. But but this one, I mean, I find it very helpful to, you know, the night before the mm. performance every week, go back through the script and just get the thoughts in my head of, okay, what happens first, second, third, fourth, mm. fifth? Where are the set changes? Where does this song happen? And just kind of refresh myself right. because it's very, uh, it's interesting how the mind works if you're only doing it one time exactly. one time a week uh,
4: and doing that sure. also it um may, it helps you discover more about exactly. the story itself if you keep studying it like you know we we know we've been in it for so long but there's so much more to discover each time it's such an iconic story so yeah
6: right it's and, really cool. and as we said at the beginning we've both been in it now for several months and it's that's the thing that actors have to do with a long run whether you're doing it eight times a week or once a week you have to find the things that keep it fresh for you, because if it's not fresh for you, the audience
4: not is not fresh going to be for anyone.
6: You.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, and speaking of that, especially with the long run, keeping it fresh, I feel like you know, do the type of New York runs, the commercial runs that are there, is something that I think you know, when people study in college yeah. or wherever they're from, it's. I don't think it's anything anybody can adequately prepare prepare for until they actually get a chance to do it. Right. Exactly. Of, of keeping
6: a role fresh for months on end you know exactly and, yeah and and uh you know you study it in college and you might do four performances and then that's that's
2: yeah. the end three or right. four performances yeah.
6: of of the show and then that's the end of it but uh you know you, three or four years of a yeah. show is a, is yeah. a different story right. but uh i don't know i think uh when we've talked about running things in rep doing two shows right. at a time three shows or doing something in summer stock is great Mm-hmm. Training and it's a great experience because you're rehearsing one show while you're preparing another show and thinking about the third show and they're all going to be done <laughs> over the course of four months and mm-hmm. it's just getting the brain to work in mm-hmm. I think a different different way. Yeah. So, w- uh, as
0: up and coming actors, what kind of and I mentioned this well, what was what are some tips and frustrations and stuff that you can share with actors who are like thinking you know I think I'm ready to move to New York and uh,
6: and. Try my hand in an acting career.
1: Right. <laughs> well, you should well, uh,
6: talk to your parents, have them write you a $25,000 check <laughs> immediately, right before you leave. Uh, no. Uh,
4: I mean, that'll get you through the first that'll week. Yeah, that'll yeah,
6: yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> no, cover the first week. You know, uh, just, just the food, but uh, it's okay. Right. Uh,
4: <laughs> definitely, like what I'm learning, I've been here for going on four years in the fall, because um, I started school at CAP 21 in fall of 2014. And I was lucky lucky enough to, you know, come to New York and have a training program, mm-hmm. you know, and have teachers and students who are, like, you know, in this world, this mm-hmm. city with me. Um, but one thing after, you know, being out of school and, you know, just being out here and auditioning, mm-hmm. working my day job, what has, like, kept the passion alive is not only projects like this, but continuing to have a creative tribe that you can have creative conversations with. You can continue to create with, um, I'm currently working on like getting. I just did hair in mm-hmm. Vermont, like I said, mm-hmm. and we're all back here, and of course, like we're the tribe still. Mm-hmm. Like, what yeah. happens when you do hair? Like, yeah. you're the tribe forever. So, um, we're working on like at least my idea is like to get um, all of us together, get like you know a group of actors or people, creative professionals who just want to get together like once a week and just you know like read through a play, do like a performance right. art piece, talk you know write and then share your writings with with your with these people um and that's the advice i've constantly been getting is to find that kind of creative tribe and it can be anyone and just talking about art like anytime you can and that just keeps it alive and through that you find connections and you find other people other friendships I mean, I, I was a server earlier this year, and the amount of people and actors I met just by being a server who are now my friends and who exactly. I, you know, have opportunities with or I could have opportunities with, and I go out and support them, they support me. It's just, it's all about being an open book, not an open book yeah. per se, but being open with the connections that can happen in the city and just looking up on the subway and being like, "Sadie." dude. Yeah,
6: <laughs> exactly. You know what and, I mean? Yeah, and I think, yeah, having that, uh, that tribe and just finding that, Creative outlet and realizing, I, I think there is a uh, a thing when you come into the the city to be an actor, to be a writer, any sort of artist. You you have a kind of an idea of what it's going to be like, <laughs> and that's great. You have to have goals and so forth, but you also have to take on sort of a pragmatic approach and say, okay, it's probably not going to work out exactly how I plan. Be open to other <laughs> things and. Find things that keep you going, that keep you excited. Uh, uh, Because there are going to be a lot of times when you're auditioning, when you're not working on something and so forth. And in this business, just to be honest, it's very easy to get frustrated with uh, (coughs) the artistic side of it, with the business side of it. But when you can find the things, find the tribe, find the, the creative outlets that can keep you excited, and
0: energy. Well, it's been wonderful getting a chance to talk to you guys. Gabriella, Marzetta and Adam Key currently in Frankenstein off Broadway at the St. Luke's and uh, other things coming. Lily Marlene uh, for Adam and um, other things in the future. Thanks so much for talking about the show. Thank your you. thoughts about the, the highs and lows of acting <laughs> in New York and good luck in your careers. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: Appreciate it. <music>
4: Talking the Trades
0: There is a project afoot to Save Tin Pan Alley and one of the people leading the charge is George Calderaro uh, who is here to talk about the Save Tin Pan Alley project and, and I'm hoping shares some of the wonderful, interesting uh, trivia factoids he knows about that era. Uh, for any listeners, and he'll probably say this better than me, but for any listeners who don't know, Tin Pan Alley is the famous street on West 28th where uh, pretty much the entire publishing industry of New York lived and the songwriters gathered and wrote on pianos. And uh, George, I'm sure, can tell you a lot more about that. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Michael. Good. So um, we'll kind of do this in two steps. A brief thing about what your campaign is, then some you know, some stories in Tin Panelli, and then we'll go more into depth about your campaign again after that. So I guess the first thing is... Um, why? What's your campaign? Why yeah. Save Tin Pan Alley? Why does it need saved?
7: Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, Save Tin Pan Alley uh, was created um, as part of by the 29th Street Neighborhood Association in New York City on whose board I serve as uh, a project to extend the Madison Square North Historic District, which is a comprehensive uh, proposal to de- uh, protect um, the uh, the area that was really the center of New York City in the late 19th, early 20th century. It's where the theaters were, mm. where the big hotels were. It was where the action was. Madison Square Garden yes. was, was right there. So we, over a period of many years, at least a decade, uh, had been proposing to, we need to really uh, appeal to the Landmarks Preservation Commission to, preserve this truly distinctive piece of New York City and late 19th, early 20th century history and architecture. Within that context, uh, on 28th Street between Broadway and 6th was Tin Pan Alley, mm-hmm. where the, the cradle of the American, pub, American songbook, the American publishing industry from specifically 1893, when the first uh, publisher, uh, Whitmark & Sons, moved there uh, through at least 1909, and some people say into the 50s. uh,
0: Is Whitmark Whitmark & Sons related to the Tams Whitmark that does all the musical theater publishing?
7: Most likely. Um, Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I'm sure, because they were there later uh, uh, bought up and subsumed like a lot of of, uh, sheet music publishers. So um, as uh, originally we saw this as part of a historic district and we uh, appealed to the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, which is an agency of the city which designates and protects um, historic districts and and individual landmarks and interior landmarks and parks. Um, Tin Pan Alley is so important and so distinctive that we decided to Pull that out of the larger proposal and say, all right, this needs to be uh, a a, 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 a New York City historic district based on the cultural significance to the city, to New York, and to the world. So we are in the process of uh, of appealing to the commission. We've had uh, meetings with the commission most recently uh, in late um, 2017. Uh, with their leadership, which continues to this day, as yes, yesterday, said we are seriously looking at a uh, Tin Pan Alley historic district. And it's a crucial moment just to get into the weeds about preservation yeah. a little bit because the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commissioner is leaving in three weeks. Oh, so yeah, yeah. it's good. There's going to be a, a regime change. But um, uh, the, the staff, the director of research, the executive director and the other leadership will be there and it's not like this proposal is going to disappear and it has been on people's radar for decades Mm -hmm.
0: so for our listeners who aren't aware i mean and tin pan alley is kind of impossible to disconnect from the development of the american musical theater um in that time period as well so
7: Well, that's (laughs) why it's on Twenty Eighth Street. Why uh, there, there was uh, a uh, uh, nascent, or there, there was a uh, 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 music industry, a song, a sheet music publishers on Fourteenth Street, where the theaters had been located. But it was with Tin Pan Alley, in the, in again the eighteen nineties, that you saw Whitmark move, and shortly thereafter followed. By other music publishers to yeah. serve the, um, the, the theaters and the, the vaudeville uh, houses that were all um, you know in, mm-hmm. in that area so it cannot be disconnected and that's why they, the, that's what makes it so distinctive for the first time the publishers were going to the public and selling the sheet music to directly to performers, to agents, to, um, to, to vendors who took the music nationwide. And sold it in uh, the hinterlands, if yeah. you will. I mean, I, I know you're from. Well, I'm the hinterlands. <laughs> so,
0: I no, I, I
7: say that with all due respect. Yeah, because it's important. Oh that, no, it's the hinterlands. That's why. That's why Tin Pan Alley is so significant because it was <laughs> the first distribution center where the song pluggers, uh, you know, promoted the music to the industry and to the theater operators, and uh, that, that it, it, it's it's very much that disbursement that makes the significance.
0: So before I get into details, so what do people need to do to help with this? Do they need to sign a petition, send money, yeah, or what Everyone, are they? <laughs> everyone
7: uh, you shouldn't say we don't need money. Yeah. Anything, I don't know. Uh, we, this is a grassroots mm-hmm. volunteer uh, organization. Um, if, everyone should go to Save Tim Pan Alley. And sign the so org right? and sign the petition which will go to the chairman of the Landmarks Commission to the deputy mayor to the mayor to the council people um, and other elected officials who are ma- are making these decisions I should say that we've got um, uh, about 20,000 uh, signatures, but we need to keep up a steady yeah. drumbeat. Uh, Does it
0: need to be all just New York residents, or can people no, from people, all over the world come inside? from all
7: <laughs> over the world, and when you combine that with the larger Nomad, than Madison Square North proposal that I mentioned earlier, we've got 40,000 signatures, but we need to keep up the drumbeat. They need to hear uh, people on a regular basis say, this must be saved, because... If you're familiar with the area, I mean, it's, it's quickly being um, surrounded, if not buried, by a uh, skyscraper, mostly hotels, because the area is, is, is designated, regulated for zoning for um, hotels and, um, and manufacturing. So it's really a miracle that, that it even survives with the incredible development that's going on in New York City.
0: So uh, tell us about some of the interesting, you know. I mean, I, I had a, the pleasure of taking a walking tour that uh, you had organized uh, a few couple days ago on the thing, and heard some really wonderful, interesting things. And you know, maybe you know, shared mm-hmm. a couple of interesting stories about right.
1: mm-hmm. about.
0: It. Well, Tin Pan Alley. I mean, I guess the first thing is you were saying that it the publishing was really decentralized before that, not just in New York, but publishing houses were kind of all over so this was also the start of the music industry of
7: the the sheet music industry and it's important to remember that's what what we're talking about because there was a a nascent uh, industry but really after it was after the civil war that that uh, pianos became affordable people had to have them in their homes and hence created the market for uh for sheet music and uh i think the statistic is that by the end of the height of the Tin Pan Alley era in 1910 there were 20 million pieces of sheet music that were sold out of that street so to just to, to you know yeah. to uh, address the 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 preponderance so it, it was there and that's where where people came and then it eventually moved with the the development of radio mm-hmm. and the phonograph and uh, and then uh, some of the uh, the the sheet music publishers and And related businesses like um, uh, the William Morris Agency was founded there as well, because again, you had the talent. Right there, uh, you also had uh, Thomas Edison was yeah. was on the block as well. Oh, really? Okay, making mean. films yeah. and filming them on the roof of uh, of the <laughs> buildings of Twenty Eighth Street with the uh, I, I, I don't know how he kept the music uh, <laughs> out of the films because the name Tin Pan Alley, as you know, was uh, was uh, uh, developed by a, a journalist who says said uh, you know it sounds like a bunch of tin cans out here with all the pianos coming out of all the music and mm-hmm. all of the 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 music publishers um there and i think that's what's you know really where the um you know the um the the stories and the anecdotes uh you know come out about the uh the really aggressive song yeah. plug, pub, pluggers who uh plugged the songs hence hence the term and um would, uh, you know, literally chase down uh, celebrities and stars and, and put the songs in front of them and practically kidnap them to listen, <laughs> listen to this music. And uh, some of these publishers include Irving Berlin, who, you know, at 16 years old, uh, was uh, working as a song publisher, uh, plugger in, uh, in, in Tin Pan Alley. And then you also have, you know, uh, uh, George M. Cohan and uh, George Gershwin, Working there, just to name a couple of of uh, of the uh, personalities uh, who were who were there, and these people would uh, literally um, they would uh, songwriters would go to Tin Pan Alley, and um, the and they were cheek by jowl in in various um, uh, row houses on Twenty Eighth Street that were originally built Mm. in eighteen fifty three. Just to give some context, they were built as Italianate mansions in the mid 1850s and but quickly by the 1890s they as as New York City moved Mm -hmm. uptown they became commercial and became a home to not just music publishers but betting parlors sports uh, 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 pool halls Mm -hmm. because we were we're now in the tenderloin adjacent (laughs) to the tenderloin as well and as often happens as happened with Times Square subsequently the um, the red light district Somehow was yeah. near the theater, near the, the sporting district. Oh, the, where
0: there's artists, where there's <laughs> right. decadence.
7: Right, <laughs> followed followed quickly by uh, luxury housing yeah. and high priced real estate. It's also the uh, the first uh, gay bath mm-hmm. is said to be on Twenty Eighth Street uh, there. So you had all sorts of of uh, of activity. It was the entertainment. District of New York City in all of its wonderful manifestations. <laughs> uh, so you would have the the song um, uh, the, the the songwriters going up and down the steps, and they would also uh, uh, of these row houses which were attached, and literally they would cross over the roofs and go go up one building and then yeah. cross over and go down the other to uh, to uh, sell their songs and really create this this contagious you know atmosphere.
0: All right. Well, I thank you so much for coming on and talking about this project. I hope our listeners go to tinpanalley.org, sign that petition. Save tinpanalley. Save
7: sorry.
0: <laughs> Well, but save tinpanalley project, and then it's tinpanalley.org, though. Save
7: tinpanalley.org. Oh, it's, it's
0: saved tinpanalley.org. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, and and sign up and find out all the, all the more information that they can get on there.
7: And be in touch with me.
0: All right. Well, thank you.
7: Thank you, Michael.
4: Curtain Call.
0: Episode 903. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we will be back very soon in September with episodes 904 and 905. So uh, keep checking back. Also, again, tell your friends about Broadway Bullet. We really thrive most on word of mouth. Are you telling uh, your theater friends and fans? You can subscribe to us for free anywhere you get your podcasts. And we are also now available to listen to on Spotify. So check that out. All right. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo.